One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Here we are once more, ladies and gentlemen, at the absolute centre of the week. That's because, of course, it is Wednesday, July the 15th. As we await the bun fight that has become Prime Minister's question starring Boris Johnson and Sir Keir Starmer, yesterday, as I quizzed one of his supporters, I asked this question. Can you please name something that the leader of the opposition has actually got right since he's been in charge? And you know what? The person I was talking to, who is a massive supporter of Sir Keir Starmer, could not name one thing. So I'm going to be asking all of you if you can name one thing that he's actually got right since he's been in charge, apart from simpering, apart from whining, apart from being forensic, apart from asking questions that nobody wants the answers to. I don't think Sir Keir Starmer is doing very much at all. Coming up, we'll be testing the temperature of the Tory party and the government with Henry Hill for Conservative Home, because we need to know from Henry whether or not there are some people out there who are beginning to ask questions about the way that this government is running the coronavirus lockdown scenario. There are plenty of people who think that they're messing it up, particularly with regard to the whole mask debate, which is still raging, which is still very unclear, which is still, I'm afraid, very confusing for an awful lot of people. Also, we'll be exploring the current state we are in with historian and archaeologist Neil Oliver, who wrote a great piece of the weekend, which basically said, and I think I have to agree with him wholeheartedly, why can't people just be more like dogs? It's a good question, isn't it? Uh, we'll also be finding out what's happening in Blackburn, where COVID-19 infections are on the rise and local council has imposed a local lockdown, 0344 499 We'll also be looking at the situation with Ghislaine Maxwell after she was denied bail yesterday by a New York judge. And I might even tell you about my encounter with some bearded snowflakes yesterday at a restaurant in Borough Market, where I was told, apparently, uh, that I was making too much noise in the outdoors, outside a restaurant, at a table, sitting amongst traffic. Ambulances, police cars, buses, all sorts of noise going on. Uh, apparently, they were disturbed by the fact that uh, they didn't like what we were saying. 0344 499 1000. And for our homeschooling today, we've got some hard sums. We're finding out what Bidmus is all about. I have no idea what it's all about, and I have no idea why I would need to know what it's all about. Uh, but uh, we shall see. I, for one, will be all ears. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, the papers this morning, and you can always tell when there's a day of sort of not very much news going on, because all the papers have got very, very different page ones. Front page of The Guardian, U-turn on Huawei puts UK's 5G rollout plan in jeopardy. And I must say, we carried it live here yesterday, Oliver Dowden's speech to the House of Commons, his statement about Huawei, which didn't make it a great deal of sense to me, it has to be said. The fact that they're now going to continue to use Huawei products until December, uh, and they're going to stop doing it in January, at which point it will be illegal, and then they're going to spend the next seven years dismantling what it is that Huawei have put into the system that we now want to take out of the system. 
It really does seem to be a ridiculous waste of time, a ridiculous waste of money. Next stop, masks in offices, says the Daily Telegraph. Uh, Threat of homes tax to pay for pandemic on the Times. Mayhem on the Orient Express, says the Sun. And Ghislaine's tears as she's told, you must stay in jail on the front page of the Daily Mail. So as you can see, no particular main story this morning to discuss. But let's talk about what's coming up at Prime Minister's Questions later on uh, with Henry Hill, who is, of course, with uh, Conservative Home, Assistant Editor. Henry, very good morning to you. Good morning. Now, the first question I have for you is, can you name me something uh, that Sir Keir Starmer has been successful at or something that he has done, which you could say, oh, look, Sir Keir Starmer's done that? Uh, Well, the thing that I think leaps to mind immediately is he's done relatively he's done relatively well at getting rid of the hard left. But I suppose they've sort of been doing that to themselves. You know, Rebecca Long Bailey shooting herself in the foot and all the rest of it. But there's a definite sense, you know, when you think back just a year ago, even we were talking about can Labour ever be recaptured? Momentum had complete control over the National Executive Committee and all the rest of it. And people were wondering, you know, people were tearing up their Labour membership cards because they were thinking, Christ, you know, even if Corbyn goes, he'll probably be able to manage the succession. What if we've lost the Labour Party? Mm. Well, a year on, and, you know, that whole whole faction is starting to look like a bit of a joke, isn't it? Momentum split in two and ran two different slates uh, for for the latest set of internal elections, the right wing momentum slate, if there is such a thing, won. Uh, he's gradually getting rid of the he's gradually getting rid of the hard left from the cabinet. There's no real evidence that they have any say over what his policy is. Mm. So I think if I had to credit anything, but it is an internal thing. You know, that's an internal yes. thing within the. Yes, I mean, it's good that you say it because actually it, you're right to say that that is a kind of achievement. But it's been remarkably easy for him. I mean, they sort of folded much easier than I thought they ever would. Well, yeah, I think this is a bit of a paper tiger, isn't it? I mean, often with Labour, you know, with the Tories, it's very much a monarchical party, right? If you if you win the leadership of the Labour Party, uh, of the Tory party, you're basically king. You get to do whatever you like and, unless and until Tory MPs decide to get rid of you. Whereas with Labour, we sort of, it's got a much more kind of complicated internal system. There's lots of different independently elected parts. And so I, I and many other observers more familiar with the Labour Party than me thought that this might be a very long campaign. Yeah. But yeah, it turns out that once they've lost control of the leadership, um, the left have just kind of lost interest in... And do you think that's it then? Do you think they've gone forever? Well, I don't think. Like, I mean, don't think they've gone forever. I think there'll always be that kind of um, that fringe in Labour politics, and you know, a lot of those, uh, re- some of the really nasty pro- sort of professional elements around Jeremy Corbyn, the Stalinists, and so on. You know, they're pros. They've been doing this for decades. Yeah. They're not going to give up now. But I think that what seems to have happened is that an awful lot of those sort of idealistic foot soldiers who were who were inspired not by Labour or even by a particular vision, but by Jeremy Corbyn mm. and his sort of personal brand. What seems to have happened is that when, once Jeremy Corbyn left the scene, uh, they're no longer getting involved and engaged. I suppose it's the danger of building a movement on the youth. Uh, but yeah, I don't think they're going to be taking control of Labour again anytime soon. No, that's good news, I think, for most of us who believe in normality in politics. Let's talk about the Tories, because um, some very strange things have been happening, Henry, over the past few days, particularly over this mask debate. You know, we have Michael Gove on Sunday basically assuring everybody that the government will not, by any stretch of the imagination, ban uh, people from walking around without masks masks on, saying we will certainly not ever make it compulsory to wear a mask in a shop. And then literally two days later, uh, uh, sorry, uh, we've made it compulsory to wear a mask in a shop. Yeah, I think it's increasingly clear that the government is divided over its approach to COVID-19. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember, you you will, right? If if over a few weeks ago when everyone was hanging on to the government's every word, you know, will we be allowed to see one more person in this particular environment and all of this? And and what seems to have happened over the last few weeks is basically that people have stopped doing that. The, The system that was put in place during the strict area of lockdown has been breaking down. You know, people I know now are basically just going about their normal lives and trying to show some, you know, take sensible precautions. Yeah. And so the government, this is the latest manifestation of that. It's quite clear that there are, there are at least two factions in the government. They're divided over strategy and the worst. And, the, and that's always normal. That's how a healthy government works. Yeah. But the problem is that they can't, they aren't controlling the messaging. You know, a division over masks should be kept in cabinet and then a clear message transmitted to the public once the decision has been made. But to have Michael Gove, one of the most senior members of the cabinet, uh, out on the Sunday, uh, on the Sunday saying, t- saying one thing and then to have changed your mind by Wednesday morning, that's showing uh, once again the perennial problem with this government's handling of the COVID-19 crisis is that it's c- c- completely lost its grip on communications. Right. And what does that mean then for confidence in the actual government and in those people who are running it? Because I keep hearing sort of, you know, whispers from the backbenchers uh, and the Tory party that, you know, Boris is not doing a great job. He's starting to 
to mess up. He's starting to allow things to slip through his grasp. I mean, are you hearing that as well? Yeah, I think Conservative Home runs and has run for years and years uh, a monthly survey of Conservative Party members, um, which provides us with a snapshot of how they think different members of the Cabinet are doing. And the feature that we've really been noticing over the last few months is, is a really persistent downward trend in Boris Johnson's personal ratings. You know, at the start of the government, yeah, even at the start of the crisis, he was one of the most popular people we've ever had in the survey. Uh, and now he's drifting downwards. I don't think he's even in the top five anymore. You know, Rishi Sunak is obviously floating up there at 90%. Because yes. Loves Rishi. Uh, but Boris Johnson's been going, and this is a problem. And, Bor- and the problem Boris has is that there's no Boris Johnson project, right? You know, when Margaret Thatcher was in office, Hmm. she had a hardcore of people who were in it for the mission. They were in it for Thatcherism. And even if they didn't necessarily like her personally, they were prepared to stick with her. They were fully signed up to a kind of a, a mission, as you say, yeah. Yeah, precisely. Boris Johnson doesn't have that. There is no Johnsonism. So the problem is that all Boris really has is the fact that he's popular and wins elections. Now, as long as that's still the case, Boris Johnson's position as leader of the Tory party is pretty secure. But the moment that stops being the case, there's no Praetorian guard ready to save Boris Johnson's premiership. I think his support could go down very, very quickly. And my suspicion at this point, I don't think there'll be an immediate move. No one wants to, you know, there's no, no one's ready to move now. It's not really the time. He's still not a net drag on the Mm. government quite. But my suspicion is that, you know, over the next few years, when we have a post-mortem into the government's handling of the COVID-19 crisis and everything else, it's increasingly likely that Boris Johnson won't be the Tory who leads the party into the next election. Yes, which already, even as you say it, sounds like a, a, a sort of step change from what we would have been talking about even as, as recently as a month ago. It, yeah, it really is. I mean, I personally, even a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking, you know, Boris Johnson is probably odds-on to lead us into the next election. You know, he won a majority of 80-something uh, only in December. It would be un- unusual, to say the least, for a, a leader who won that result not to then fight the next election. Right. Uh, you know, Margaret, Margaret Thatcher did, but she'd won three, right? So that was a bit different. Mm. But no, I, I, do, I do genuinely think it's looking like this is going to be a difficult few years, and it's increasingly likely that the Tory party is going to want another reset. Now, it's already done several, you know, it's difficult to imagine now that this is technically the sort of the same government that came into office in 2010. Mm. You've already had the switch to Theresa May and now the switch to Boris Johnson. But it is going to look like the Tory party is going to go into the next election wanting a fresh face and a fresh programme. It's interesting, isn't it? Because when you look at back back at sort of David Cameron, who didn't appear to be much of a, um, a sort of an individualist in particular, he didn't appear to also have much of a, um, a mission about what he did in politics. However, you know, Boris Johnson makes him look like a conviction politician. Well, I think the difference is that, that David Cameron, one, he had a bit more of a mission than, than sometimes I think we appreciated at the time. You know, there was Cameroonism, this modernisation, this conception of a very liberal Tory party. Now, we mm. can debate how successful that was, but, you know, it did exist. He had this idea of the big society. And the other thing that happened, that, that, the difference is that, you know, David Cameron became Conservative leader in 2005. So he had five years in opposition right. to kind of shape the party in his image, build up his policy perspectives. You don't get that space if you take over whilst the party's in office. Uh, and we saw this problem with Theresa May. You know, when Theresa May came to office, she, she clearly had some very strong opinions and her advisors had some very strong opinions, but she hadn't had time to develop Mayism, right? She had no think tanks, no real policy perspectives and no allies. And it's the same with Boris Johnson. He hasn't been out there for the last five to ten years, you know, working with a think tank, building up, a, you know, uh, an ideology. He's just kind of seized the job. And he ha- and therefore he's having to try and make the Tory, remake the Tory party on the fly, which is quite difficult to do. Yes, indeed. And as far as the next few sort of weeks and months are concerned, Henry, um, obviously the, the, the method by which we try and lift the economy out of the doom and gloom, which many people predict it to be in, uh, the, the way in which we try to kind of get people out and about uh, is going to be crucial. Because I think one of the other things that people have got upset about is that, you know, only a week ago we were told, get out there, get back in the pubs, get back in the restaurants, go back to work if you possibly can. Now it's kind of, uh, we've kind of gone back the other way, right? Where it's now all about, um, you know, wearing a mask, maybe wearing a mask in the office, um, and actually maybe not going back to work. 
Well, I, I think it's, it's absolutely surreal. You know, one of the things I've been most looking forward to is the fact that restaurants are reopened, right? Yes. Eating out is one of my great joys in life. But I think it's, I can't get my head around how it's supposed to be so dangerous. For, and I'll wear a mask in a supermarket. That's fine. If they tell me that's what's needed, that's fine. But, you know. Except, except so they're, they're, they're saying you don't have to wear one if you're in a pub. Yeah, or sitting opposite someone for a couple of hours right. in a restaurant, you know, literally breathing at them. But if you're in the, if you're, if you're walking down an aisle in a supermarket, best be wearing a mask. You know, mm. it, it doesn't work. I think there's a real tension. I think the government's problem is this: there is a real danger of a second wave uh, in winter, uh, which will come on top of the usual, you know, the cyclical NHS winter crisis because there'll be a, a whole load of other conditions and all of the usual things. And there's a danger that that could be really quite bad. So the government wants to avoid that as much as possible, but. They're stuck on the horns of a dilemma because if they don't reopen the economy, if they don't get us moving, if they don't get us eating out and back to work, they risk a catastrophic economic collapse. They risk whole sectors of the economy just folding completely. And obviously, if that happens, they they don't have the money to fight COVID-19. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the result is this really kind of confusing mismatch of please go out and spend money. Here's a voucher to go out to a restaurant, but oh, think twice before you go to the supermarket. It's, yes. it's, 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 it's very confusing. It's, I think th- it's thoroughly confusing, and, and, and that's for people who supposedly are relatively clever at working these things out. But uh, let's face it, uh, looking ahead to Prime Minister's questions today, what do you suspect that Sir Keir Starmer will be attacking Boris Johnson on? Because it has become um, a slightly more lively event to watch now. It's a bit more entertaining than it used to be. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, Sir Keir doesn't have, have yet the measure, I don't think, of Boris Johnson uh, at, the, at the Wednesday sort of set to. No, well, I think you know, the, obvious lead, uh, the obvious lead subject, as we've just been discussing, is the fact that the government seems to be here, there and everywhere on, on, on COVID-19, because mm. this is something that's really going to resonate with the public. You know, it's bad enough if you're someone you know, like us who has to follow the news for a living and we're confused. You know, what's it like for somebody who just, you know, somebody who doesn't work in politics, who only pays a normal amount of attention to politics, who's just picking up the government's public health advice? Are they, are they more confused? Are they yeah. more scared? Uh, I think he could also potentially go on, you know, and plead the prospects of employment, you know, demanding that the government be more interventionist. Uh, the, the, there's stories today that Rishi Sunak is thinking about ushering in higher taxes. That's probably something that, could, uh, that Keir Starmer will want to to go for him on. And he mm. may also choose to try and hammer the government over its sort of very, very swift Huawei U-turn. You know, it was only relatively recently that the government was was saying, "Oh no, this is fine. We've got this signed off by the security services. Yeah. Uh, we we can have we can have this Chinese state company effectively um, heavily involved in our system, and it's all going to be fine." Now they're saying completely the opposite, and they've got a plan to try and extra, to com- try and completely remove the company from our from our. Yeah, but it's going to take them seven years. I mean, it's a bizarre that. situation as well that they had to come up with to say that yeah, we can keep buying Huawei products until January, uh, and then it will become illegal after that. Uh, and meanwhile, we will be dismantling what is in the system already but it will take seven years and cost about three billion quid and it's kind of typical of the profligacy i think of all governments where they just don't know how to spend money don't know how to save money and it takes forever to do anything absolutely i think and also you know, i was reading um yesterday that they're, they're, apparently there's a real concern that other providers are simply going to buy up lots of cheap huawei equipment and then right. keep installing it anyway so that so the, <laughs> the, the legislation's probably right. going to need to be changed yet again mm. and so i think that you know that what the common theme for all of this for, for secure is that this is a government that was only elected seven months ago which has the largest parliamentary majority we've we've had since you know 2010 I yeah. think, and is Withering all over the place. It can't make it. It can't make a firm decision. Yeah, fine. COVID nineteen is a sort of a black swan. It's come out of nowhere. Mm. Scrabbling a bit. Fine. But Huawei. Huawei is a fairly conventional national security and infrastructure decision. If they can't, if they're if they're U turning on that as well, what's going on? Yes, it's a very good question, Henry. As ever, thank you very much indeed, Henry Hill, there, assistant editor of Conservative Home, uh, with some very genuine questions. Now, before all of you get very worked up about whether or not uh, we have turned into a critic of the government, well, we've always been a critic of the government. The point is, is if the government just starts to do things which don't seem to make any sense we will point that out and we will ask the questions as to why they're doing them and if you are seriously going to tell me that the government's strategy on wearing masks in shops is sensible um, then please i've got some land to sell you a swamp land indeed in florida this is talk radio
Talk Radio. Right now, uh, we're going up to Blackburn because uh, Blackburn is the latest hotspot uh, for the coronavirus. They've had a bit of a peak up there uh, and the local council have now uh, basically shut down parts of Blackburn because of a sharp rise in infections. We're going to talk now to uh, Kazir Mahmood, a councillor for Wensley Fold in Blackburn. Kazir, very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi, good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for joining us, Kazir. Tell us a bit about what happened um, and when you first noticed that there was this spike and, and if so, if, if possible, uh, maybe you can explain why. I think uh, what, what uh, the public health colleagues have been doing, uh, you know, sort of throughout the uh, coronavirus pandemic is monitoring uh, the infection rates right across every constituency, every council. Right. And we're no different here in Blackburn where, you know, uh, despite the sort of easing of the lockdown, we're still getting regular reporting uh, of uh, the infection rates coming through to our public health teams and uh, we continue to monitor and adapt accordingly. Right. I mean, in a way, I'm quite encouraged by the fact that uh, that guys like yourselves uh, and Leicester and, and other councils in places like Rochdale are kind of keeping an eye on things and, and they are spotting this stuff when required. So are you comfortable and, and confident that, that you're getting this uh, pretty much right? I think I think you know one thing is is pretty we're confident with is is monitoring is you know quite key in in enabling you to adapt your strategy mm. depending on which way the figures are going so you know we we we're, we're seeing a trend at the moment which is on the upwards uh, direction so you know very quickly before we even get to the situation that Leicester got to we've started implementing prevention strategies and prevention is going to be the way forward in, in terms of making sure that, you know, we keep everybody safe and minimise yeah. the risk to people. So what exactly uh, have you done? What is what, what are the measures that you've brought into play? I think uh, what, what, working with our public health colleagues yesterday, uh, you know, they announced that, you know, we're going to limit the number of people uh, meeting in the same household. Government guidelines are that, you know, more than two households can meet, etc. Mm. Our recommendation is that, uh, people uh, from other households should meet, carry on, but only two at a time. Uh, so if you are going to visit your loved ones, just instead of a big family get together, you uh, do two people at any one time uh, from another household visiting. So we're not stopping people from visiting. We're not stopping people from interacting, but we're limiting the numbers, which you know inevitably will limit the risk uh, that it poses to people when they're mixing. Sure. And obviously we've been talking a lot here on this station about government policy and how that policy is carried out and how it's kind of, you know, policed, if you like. Are you able to uh, say to me that this is a recommendation rather than a rule? Because we're already having a conversation this week about mask wearing and whether people are going to be forced to wear a mask if they go into a shop or whether they're just going to be kind of asked to. Then this is a recommendation and, you know, we've been, you know, working right the way through with, uh, you know, multiple agencies locally in our in our, in our council and mm. it's worked very effectively and the message, you know, is getting through and people have, and the residents have worked with us, uh, you know, uh, right across uh, the, the council and, you know, it's a recommendation that, you know, again, carry on working with us. The, the virus hasn't gone away, you know, and there is a significant risk that if we don't implement uh, caution and prevention, then, you know, we could get up to another a peak and we nobody wants another peak whether that's a local or a national peak and we're trying to prevent that okay and do you have any clue yet as to why the infection rate has started to rise so significantly i think there's a lot of work being done uh, it, it's it's nowhere near the figures that you know uh, we're you know in terms of leicester mm. uh, our infection rate i think from has gone from 21 to 40 something uh, in the last sort of 10 days or so. Uh, Leicester, when they went into lockdown, were at 137 per 100,000. So, you know, we've started implementing, rather than wait till we get to an infection rate of 100 plus before we start implementing prevention strategies, let's start working on it now to try and, you know, sort of suppress that uh, infection rate very, very quickly. Inevitably, people have been under lockdown for three plus months, uh, you know, and, and people have started the easing of lockdown. Uh, and it's trying to get that message across to people that, yes, you know, you've, you know, you've got the relaxation of the lockdown, mm. but it doesn't mean that you stop implementing your prevention strategies, like keeping your distance, like, you know, washing your hands, uh, and, you know, not, uh, keep, you know, sort of uh, mixing in, in big groups. So that's all we're trying to do here. Sure. And as a council, um, when you try to follow government policy, do you find that the government policy that you're trying to follow is coherent or do you find it's a bit contradictory? I think it, right the way through, there's there's been sort of 
mixed messages, uh, you know, in terms of uh, from a national level. Uh, locally, people have, you know, interpreted them differently uh, and, you know, sort of uh, the interpretation at local level, you know, just like what we're doing here, you know, the national guidance is that, yeah, you're allowed to mix more than two households, you know, although, you know, we could carry on going down that route and, and put, put people at risk and wait for the infection rate to go up. We've decided, no, as a, as a, as a locality, uh, we want to try and suppress this earlier. So, yes, there's national guidance, which, you know, the recommendation is to follow. But, you know, if you feel that you want to sort of make it more effective, uh, there should be the ability to adapt that at a local level as well. Are you that's what we've been doing. Are you concerned that your movements and your, your kind of lockdown here might be a bit more alarming to people than you want it to be, if you know what I mean? Like, would, would people be more upset about this than... Than, than the actual effect of what you're doing. I think, Mike, one, one thing is, is that we haven't gone into lockdown. What we're, what we're implementing here is additional measures. You know, Blackburn Darwin Borough Council isn't in lockdown. The town centres are open. We're looking to open the libraries, the leisure centres and everything else that, you know, we want to get back on, uh, up and running and, and get the local economy going again. What we're trying to do here is, is put in a bit of a, you know, a tighter control around the prevention strategies. So people, you know, can actually carry on doing what they want to do. Uh, but, you know, being more aware and, and implementing that sort of prevention program. So uh, that's all we're trying to do here is, is to mitigate the, the risk. OK. And finally, because uh, I appreciate your time, what, what are you doing council wise in terms of your own office space, in terms of your own place of work? Are you guys uh, looking at going back to work in the same way that you were doing, say, back in February at any point soon? We are looking to go back. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Front of office, uh, there's been a lot of work going on the last couple of weeks uh, around risk assessments, working with our sort of uh, property teams, etc., and, and carrying out those risk, risk assessments. And, you know, from sort of last week, we started opening the front door to the town hall. Uh, and, you know, that's albeit limited with all the prevention measures in place, which is working quite nicely. Uh, a lot of our people are now sort of interacting with the council by digital platforms like we are, uh, you know, uh, nationally. Uh, and people are getting, you know, sort of used to and getting the level of service that they've always got. Uh, and, you know, we're now putting in plans to, to open up, you know, the, the museums, the libraries, uh, the leisure centres. So, yes, we, you know, we, we are planning to, you know, come up to a full full opening. OK. Kazir, thanks very much indeed. Kazir Mahmood, their councillor for Wednesday Fold in Blackburn, telling us about their localised sort of lockdown that's going on uh, because they're slightly worried there's been a rise uh, in the infection rates. So I think that's going to be happening over more and more sort of, you know, small places as we go forward. But in the end... I think we have to all accept that, you know, this will be a disease, this will be a virus that will be with us for quite some time. And if you're looking at what the government strategy is, uh, up until now, I've been incredibly supportive of the government and I'm still supportive of the government. I think Boris Johnson is doing a fantastic job considering all of the things that he's had to fight with and battle with. However, uh, this mask debate is slightly getting out of control, slightly getting out of hand. As I said yesterday, and many of you still want to talk about it, you know, it makes no sense to anyone with a brain uh, why people would be told that you have to wear a mask if you go into a shop, but not if you go into a pub. It makes no sense to say to people who work in shops you don't have to wear a mask except for the people uh, who do come in to see you have to wear a mask I mean it's just it's all over the place and I think something needs to be done somebody needs to get a grip of it before uh, it all starts to unravel One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I'm going to ask for your forgiveness if you don't have a dog at this point, because if you've never had a dog and you don't know what having a dog is all about, you will probably never quite understand what we are about to discuss. But Neil Oliver, uh, who is a great historian, fantastic uh, TV presenter of Coast, brilliant archaeologist and great thinker, uh, wrote an amazing piece at the weekend about how wonderful dogs basically are. Um, And the headline was, Amazing Gracie has made a wretch like me barking mad for dogs. Now, apart from the fact that that's all a bit cliched, that's not his fault. That was the Sunday Times that put that headline on it. Um, Dogs have actually kept an awful lot of people sane, I think, in this particular lockdown. Neil, a very good morning to you. Welcome back. Good morning, mate. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Um, I mean, it's, I, I never know what you're going to write about at the weekend. I don't know how, how you or when you decide what you are going to write about, but it was a very pleasant sort of um, uh, side show, I suppose, from COVID and from the lockdown and from all the madness of, of crowds and the people shouting at one another and arguing on Twitter for you just to write this very loving piece about your dog and what, what your dog has done for you. I do often, uh, I quite often write about my dog uh, because, uh, as you said, if you don't own a dog, if you've never owned a dog, the the depth of emotion might escape you, understandably. But I've learned so much from from being a a companion to a dog. I don't even consider that I own her anymore. If there's any one, people think it cuts the other way. But um, in this lockdown situation, you know, amongst many other things, we're being denied the opportunity to see ourselves reflected in each other's eyes. And and I think a lot of the understanding, the valuable understanding that we get about ourselves is reflected back at us. You know, you can think your own thoughts and you can come to conclusions, but it's when you test those uh, ideas out on others that you see that the right and wrongness of them reflected back at you. And we're we're missing out on on, on normal discourse. And uh, the great, uh, the much beloved uh, Scots poet, um, Robert Burns, you know, said, would some power the gift to gay us to see ourselves as others see us, mm. which is to say, if only God had given us the ability to see ourselves through others' eyes. And I think quite simply, w- when you own a dog, you do get that. You, you get the, the, you get the, uh, the judgment of another living creature, not even our own species. And when times... When times are hard as they are at the moment, uh, there's something profoundly comforting, I think, about seeing the reassurance of in, a, in the eyes of a, of, a, of a beloved pet, because our pets, our dogs, require from us the very basic things of life. They want shelter, they want food, and they want love, the love of the pack. Uh, and no matter what's going on in your own life, if you have a dog, you have to you have to rise above your own problems and deal with what that other species needs. And through lockdown, apart from anything else, we have had as a family, we've had to go out every day for a walk, for an hour, because Gracie needs it and and is deserving of that. And she has given us a structure to our days that we might not otherwise have had. And if if you feel as if the world is ganging up on you sometimes, or if you feel out of step with, with the current opinion that's out in the world, you come back in and you look in your dog's eyes and your dog just looks at you and reflects back at you what it sees in you. And to be uh, valued, trusted and respected and needed by a dog is just balm for the soul in troubled times. It is. And you make the point, Gracie is your dog's name, Wolfhound, uh, that the world has basically remained what it always was, which I find interesting as well, because for those of us who think that we've gone through this kind of terrible change, that the world has altered uh, and, and, and has kind of reappeared in an unrecognisable form where you're walking around with masks on, you're walking around uh, distancing yourself from other people, you're no longer hugging people, you're not kissing people. You know, um, for a dog, as you point out, it's still, it's nothing's actually changed. It's, oh, I'm not, I, I, I'm nodding along with, with every word you're saying. Um, 
these our world is so complicated with or without the virus and, and, the, and some of the things that are going on at the moment we've made we've made for ourselves such a complicated mm. world uh, but dogs a dog reminds you of what is this essential to life as I, I mentioned before shelter and food and love the, the, the love of the pack the love of the family uh, if if you take away if you if you give someone if you put someone in a state of pain be it emotional or physical or, or if you take away food or shelter from them, their appetite for smartphones and social media and fast cars goes out of the window pretty mm. quick. Yeah. So, suddenly it's all about the basics. And in a fundamental sense, a dog never gets away from those basics. And if you have the companionship of a dog, you're constantly reminded of the essential uh, important elements of a happy life. Happiness is not being in physical or emotional pain. It's having enough food to eat it's having shelter and it's being surrounded if possible by those who love you and love you for who you are. And you get that from a dog. You get it from people, of course you do. But there's something, we as a, as a species, biologists debate to this day how long ago we became connected to dogs. Uh, some say it's 30 or 40,000 years ago that that relationship was formed or, or maybe as recently as maybe in the last 10 to 15,000. But in any event, how miraculous is it that two different species saw in one another reasons to come together? And we call it domestication, which it is. You know, all, all dogs are, are descended from the European grey wolf. Every species of dog, is, you know, there's, there's hardly any variation between them, but they're essentially all the same breed in the same way that we are all the same breed of dog as human beings. And I find it very important that all the domestications that happened of the, of the animals, horses, sheep, cattle, it all happened long ago, and there's no more domestication to come. Those those special relationships with, with certain animals, it all happened long ago, and certainly the first of them was with the dog. And we must be able to see something important in the fact that two species, so very, very different in, in, in obvious ways, saw that their lives would be better if they were shared. Mm. And that, I think, says something important about what it is to be alive and and I think, as you say, what it is to to realise that actually the more that what the world seems to change around us, the less we should be concerned about that, and the more we should regard the important things of life as staying the same. I mean, Ricky Gervais, who's a great dog lover, great animal lover, uh, in his new show Afterlife, talks about you know he he he's terribly depressed. His his wife dies of cancer, but the reason he doesn't kill himself is because he has to feed the dog. You know, and it's kind of that simple. And he's like, he realizes that the dog relies upon him, so he can't kill himself. You th it sounds, it sounds well. You know, obviously, Ricky Gervais uh, has made it the subject of a well, has made it part of a comedy, and it sounds like a joke. But you know, in co in comedy and humor, there is profound truth. Mm. And however, however simple it is, there's no getting away from the importance of the, that's there in having to look after someone else. And in this case, the someone can be a dog. Yeah. And that, that, and that that dog, no matter what stresses and strains and incomprehensions you're going through as a human being in this complicated modern world, your dog needs water, it needs out to go to the toilet, it needs your love, it needs food, and that's it. Mm. And essentially, in, in, uh, if this is a man, Primo Levi's great work about surviving the concentration camps, uh, it, it, you know, during uh, the, the terrible uh, genocide in Europe in the 20th century, uh, he's at his lowest ebb at one point, quite early on in the story, uh, but he encounters in the in the foul wash houses that they all get herded into every morning, he encounters somebody that he knew from the world before, a, co a colleague. And this colleague has stripped off and has his clothes neatly folded, held between his knees, and he's going through the motions of washing in cold water, in a trough. And Primo Levi says to him, why bother? What is the point? Who are you kidding? And his colleague says, this is when it matters most, because you must maintain the scaffolding of a dignified life. And your sense of humanity cannot be taken from you. You can only surrender it. It can be beaten out of you, it can be tortured out of you, but ultimately it can only be taken from you. You have to, no, it can't be taken from you. You have to surrender it. And this man was saying, do not surrender your humanity, no matter the chaos and the horror that's around you choose to maintain your humanity and I'm doing this by doing the things I would do on a normal day if I wasn't in this hellhole. I would get up, I would go to the bathroom, 
I would wash myself and I would put clothes back on and I would start the day that way. And that maintains my scaffolding. And that scaffolding is all I have left in this hell to keep me upright. Mm. And there's some of that essential truth in walking your dog. If you think the world is against you and if you think there's no hope left, if you are blessed by being able to look across into the dark brown eyes of a dog that simply needs fed or watered or taken out for a walk, then joining with that species, that other creature, in that simple necessity of life gives you back your human dignity. It's that simple. Yeah. You find your, how miraculous that to some extent you can be reminded of human dignity, not in the face of another human, but by a positive and loving interaction with a member of another species. That, that says at least as much about what it means to be human and alive. Mm as does any interaction that we might have with our fellow human beings. Yes, because our interaction with our fellow human beings is becoming what I would regard as slightly tricky at times at the moment. I mean, I had a run-in with some people yesterday uh, simply because I was out having lunch uh, in an outside uh, situation out on the street. These people came and sat down next to us and complained that we were making too much noise. And it was like, you know, what's wrong with you? Get over it. You know, when I take my dog out for a walk, I have conversations with him uh, which, of course, he can't talk back to me, but he kind of can with his eyes, you know, and he kind of looks back. And, I, you know, I find myself sometimes wandering through the fields around where I live in Sussex um, and somebody comes around the corner and you're talking to the dog and you're kind of going, oh, I've been caught out talking to the dog. But they kind of understand it, that it's a very um, happy place to be. Don't you get that as well? It, it also makes your dog can make bridges between you and other people yeah. in, in, in ways that might otherwise be absent. You know, we've got a route that we walk every day pretty much we go the same walk every day uh, with Gracie and we meet sometimes we meet new people but a lot of the time we meet the same people again and again and again and, the, and in, the, in the majority there are other dog owners and you do that crazy thing of you you can begin a relationship with a fellow human being actually by talking to the dog first of all because you know you can say hello to the dog yeah and when that when that other owner realizes that you are simpatico with what it is to be a dog owner you've instantly it opens up a whole world of connections between you and we have now forged friendly convivial relations with people that we would otherwise never have met simply because of the shared experience of, of passing in opposite directions and and sharing the companionship of dogs and it and it, it brings us it brings us together as people through the medium of another species i think that's i think that says something really deep that can be so so easily overlooked because people just oh, well you're just a dog owner but yeah it's actually a profound relationship oh yeah i mean we know people by their dogs' names. I mean, there are people that I know that I, who I don't actually know their names, but I know their dog's name. And so that's the people that you meet when you're on the walk with them. You can get, I think, uh, you, you can be reminded of, of the value of human life. I think we're, we're, we're too much in danger of, you know, this lack of kindness and this, this default setting that so many of us are having at the moment towards uh, aggression to the, to the stranger and to the other and, and to take up these defensive stances all the time. And I think we're losing a bit of sight of, of, our, of each other as, as simple, you know, naked apes, just, just people trying to get by and making mistakes. You know, thousands of years ago, supposedly, we learned the value of redemption and the idea of not judging one another lest we be judged. You know, and these are, religious or not, these are important lessons to live by. When I was, I was working in Australia a few years ago and we were telling a, a story uh, for, for, uh, for the documentary Coast Australia, about the whalers of a town called Eden, uh, fittingly enough, uh, in southern New South Wales. And the, the, the legend was, or the story, the factual story was that the, the European whalers uh, had been out and had been going out in their ships, and when they harpooned a big whale, a humpback, uh, the, the killer whales would come in and try to eat, and what they wanted was the tongue and the lips of the big whales. And the Europeans' response, first of all, was to harpoon the killer whales and to try and drive them away. But the Aboriginal Indigenous Australian said, no, you're making a big mistake there. We've known for thousands of years that the killer whales want to join in the hunt and they want to cooperate because they've identified you as useful fellow hunters. Mm. And if you simply, if you harpoon, they will, they will bring the, the, the big whales in like, like sheep dogs bring in sheep. You can harpoon them. You, you lay off, you let the killer whales go in and all they will take is the tongue and the lips and then they will withdraw and you'll be left with the whale carcass and you can get the oil and the, and the blubber and the bone and whatever else it is that you need. 
And we call it the law of the tongue, the law of the tongue. And if you adhere to the law of the tongue, you will have a relationship like no other with a fellow hunter. And one family only in Eden, New South Wales, the the Grahams, adopted the strategy of the law of the tongue. And and they forged this relationship with a pod of killer whales that that transcended generations. It It was passed from father to son. As the new whales came and the, and the new sons of the family went into the whaling industry, this, can, this relationship with the animal continued. And there is something very, very deep and very v- profoundly educational about realising that other species with which we share the planet sometimes identify us as useful, yes. as valuable. Because the Aboriginal Australians were at pains to point out that the, the relationship was initiated not by people, but by the whales the whales had watched, the whales had identified fellow hunters and had decided for themselves that a union with those other species on the planet would be mutually beneficial. And they had engineered that relationship. And so we can learn what our, what our values are, what our potentials are as, as, as animals reaching out for understanding. We can acquire some of that understanding by looking into the eyes of fellow creatures there are such lessons to be learned and a child can learn it from the youngest age by something as simple as, as having the opportunity to have a relationship with a dog. Well, it's heartening to hear that there are some species that actually do think we're useful. That is that is good. Let me ask you about the big story of the morning, uh, which is rapidly becoming, which is the removal of obviously that uh, uh, William Colston statue down in Bristol. You and I have spoken about the whole statue craze earlier in the, uh, uh, in, the in the lockdown. They've replaced it apparently overnight uh, with a local artist's uh, impression of a statue of a woman who was on the Black Lives Matter march. I mean, it's probably getting more coverage than it should get, but it's basically a, 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 a woman standing with her fist raised as a black power sort of uh, signal uh, on the plinth that Edward Colston once stood on. I'm finding it slightly ironic that the people who wanted to tear down a statue of a genuinely important figure in history, regardless of what he did or didn't do, uh, they've now replaced it with somebody who I don't think it would, in years to come will be considered important. I think... Uh, we've been talking about the necessity to, to, to strip back to, to simple things that, that we can understand almost as, as children. Uh, and, and I think it, it's one, another of those situations where we need to remind ourselves of what we learn at our mother's knees about, about right and wrong and fairness. Mm. Um, and I would say that whatever is, that, that, that's a topic that's become as hot as a crucible in a furnace, really. <laughs> yeah. You'd be, you'd, be, you'd be hard pushed for anyone to touch it without burning their fingers. But mm. I would say it, it has to come down to simple things about we have long ago decided that we, we, uh, we take collective decisions for the, for the collective good and that it, we, we need to go through processes of listening, talking. Always, it's always about talking and listening, hear, hearing different ideas and making uh, majority decisions as a result of some version of the democratic process. I would say, in just the same way that if there was a uh, if there was a, a time had come where a different figure had to be on that plinth, then the decision to remove it or not ought better to have been taken by the people of Bristol or the people of. I don't know how you work that one out. And likewise, if there's a decision about what else to go on the plinth, then it has to be a decision born of a of a simple discussion by the people of Bristol about what they want. Maybe they don't want any. Maybe they don't want anything on the plinth at all. Right. Uh, that would be the that would be the product uh, of a of a simple, straightforward conversation. I mean, I, I was I, I had a, I was looking for something the other day, and I, I saw the the statue of justice. Um, there's a outside uh, the old Bailey, I yeah. think it is, uh, and I know the figure didn't start out with a blindfold, but it, it, in more recent times, the figure of justice is is blindfolded because, yeah. because the idea is that that we ought to be judged if we are to be judged at all. Uh, by by a process where we're we're not judged as ourselves, but we're we're judged uh, blindly. You know that justice should be blind. It shouldn't be paying attention to who you are, what colour you are, what religion you are. It should just justice should be doled out equally to all. And so the blindfold is supposedly there to make justice blind. But there there have also for a long time, almost from the blindfold went up, there have some, there have been those who have suggested that it's because sometimes justice turns a blind eye. Mm. Now I don't know the truth of either. But I, I, I definitely don't think it's in the interests of all if we ever get into a situation where, in some circumstances, justice is seen to turn a blind eye. 
that would that would definitely be bad because any system we have to remember that any system that can't protect the worst of us cannot certainly cannot protect the best of us you know and so we need we need blindfolded justice so that we're being so that we're not being judged on the basis of our our past or our color or our religion or, or anything else justice has to be blind mm. and i think that there is a way to to resolve that red hot white hot burning situation uh, around that plinth in bristol by just going back to simple fundamentals which is everyone who has a stake in this must be heard and a decision is taken collectively yeah I think that's very right and very true. And justice has to be seen to be done as well as being done. And it also has to be done the same for everybody. Neil, once again, thank you very much indeed. We'll talk to you again next week. Neil, Neil Oliver uh, there with his take on uh, what's going on this week. Uh, and of course, on what's going on down in Bristol. We'd love to hear from you on that one. A lot of people, uh, of course, you might not be surprised saying, I find it offensive. I want to tear it down. Uh, and of course, the argument that uh, you can't do that doesn't apply because it's already happened. So you should probably be able to do that without fear or favour. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's that time of the day, of course. It's just after the news at 12.30, so it is time for homeschooling. We've been doing this for the best part of the last several weeks because uh, we started off, I suppose, uh, back at the back end of uh, March. And we do it every single day. Uh, we've been learning all sorts of amazing things. Yesterday we did a thing about clouds. Uh, we've done stuff about the weather. We've done things about maths. And I'm delighted to say we are welcoming back uh, Dr. Jamie Frost, maths teacher, finalist for the Global Teacher Prize 2020. Uh, he is from, of course, drfrostmaths.com. And uh, Jamie, welcome back to uh, the Independent Republic. Uh, thank you for having me back. No, listen, we love you so much that we, you can teach us so many things. I'm now going to do something that I've never done before, uh, which is to introduce a word called bidmus, um, which until this morning I hadn't heard of at all. Um, but apparently it stands for brackets, indices, division, multiplication, addition and subtraction. And already, I'm afraid to say, Jamie, this has caused some consternation in the office because I was given an equation <laughs> earlier to solve, which I thought I'd solved, and apparently I'm told I didn't solve it right. Well, no, there's, 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 it's not really debatable as such, but even my, I was talking with my dad about it the other day, and he was we had the argument, what is 1 plus 1 times 2? Right. And he's absolutely insistent that it is 4. Right. Um, and he's saying, I don't care about your PhD, I know I'm right, because that's how I was taught it at school. Right. So uh, it's quite, quite a hot topic, but there, there is very much a, a set way of doing these things, which we're going to go through. Right. Um, just to give you some intro into this, if I was to say, let's go to English actually. So if I was to say, um, I saw the monkey with my binoculars, how would you interpret that sentence? Um, uh, how do you mean? I'd, I'd assume that you saw a, a, a monkey quite far away by looking through some binoculars. Sure, but there, there's actually a second interpretation. It could be that some monkey stolen your binoculars and you saw the monkey with your binoculars. Oh, I see. Sense. Okay. Right. Well, I suppose so, that depends on what sort of a, a, a crime-ridden place you live in, if the monkeys go around stealing binoculars. Yeah, so it, it, you can see there's some, a degree of ambiguity. Yes. And there's two things going on here. We've got syntax and semantics. Right. So syntax is like effectively the grammar. So how are words in the English language allowed to come together? And both of those interpretations are syntactically, they're grammatically valid. They're both valid, um, but one is probably more semantically plausible than the other. And semantics yeah. just means the meaning. How do we interpret the, the actual words? Yes. Um, now, with maths, we don't want that kind of ambiguity. With an expression like one plus one times two, we want there to be a set way that we actually interpret that expression so that if we were to put it into a calculator or a computer, we know how the computer or the calculator is going to evaluate that. And that's why we have to have these rules, a grammar, if you like, which, as you correctly described, is called bidness. And that's basically the order in which you do the various things in expression. So I've, I've conveniently written it here for you. And I understand that, well, obviously your listeners won't be able to see this, but at least you will be able to see it. Well, the people so, watching YouTube can see it, don't worry. That's true. So bidness, as you correctly said, we've got brackets in the top. And right. that means if you see brackets in expression, you have to do that first. So I've right. written the top, do first. Um, and then as we go down, uh, indices, that's just a posh word for powers. So things like squared, cubed, to the power of that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah? Right. And then on the next level, we've got um, division and multiplication. So if we see any divisions or multiplications, we do those next. And then finally, at the very bottom, we've got addition and subtraction. So those are things 
that we do last. Right. Yep. Okay. So, so you see, with me, with my, with my English for me is a, is much more my subject than maths is. Right. So quite often, um, those sentences that you that, that one sentence that you talked about the monkey in the binoculars, quite often that can be changed depending upon the punctuation and depending upon the grammar, as you said. Um, so this is, in a way, I'm assuming, kind of grammar for maths, is it? Oh, absolutely. And because I, I was in an area called computational linguistics, which right. is how we can sort of use maths for tasks in like the English language, like how do we translate between languages? How do we try and assimilate the grammar of a language just using some books we found in that language and, right. and things like that? So very much the, the rules we apply to the English language also apply to mathematical expressions. It's exactly the same kind of logic behind it, which is really cool, I think. And it means we can write the same algorithms just like for predictive text and stuff to actually also interpret mathematical expressions so it's really cool in that way all right because i've got a, a sum here right and the question i was given and it has no brackets it has no punctuation as such mathematically 13 minus 3 times 4 plus 2 right now yeah and in fact let's see i was pre-warned of that question so well, um i've written oh you've got it there yeah, top so we'll, we'll probably start, we'll start with the easy ones. We've got the top, right? Um, one plus one times two at the top. There. One plus one times two. Well, I think I'm with your dad on this one. I mean, isn't that four? <laughs> well, it's not because the thing is, if we look at our business, we've got um, we can see that uh, what have we got in this expression? We've got a multiplication, right? We've got that time there, and then we've got the addition as well, right? So we don't necessarily do it left to right, just like with the monkey. You don't necessarily interpret the sentence left to right. You see what you group together first. It might be the monkey with the binoculars that gets mm. grouped together first. Oh, okay. So, if we look so, at you business, go, so you go two times one first. That's correct. So multiplication and division always comes first in this expression. Right. So um, we can see the time. So we do the one times two, you're correct, which is two. Right. And then we next do the addition. So we've now got the one plus that one times two. Yes. So it's one plus two, which is three. Right. So, so um, am I going to be too premature if I jump to the other one that we mentioned, 13 minus 3 times 4 plus 2? Sure, so, go ahead. Go so, so then we should presumably multiply 4 times 3 first, right? Correct. Which gives exactly. 12. So it's 13 minus 12, yep. which is 1 plus 2, yep. and the answer is 3. That's correct. You that, see? That's very good. You oh, see, well. I said that, right? And I was told by the woman who set this up that it was 42. And I, no, no, and no. I declared her to be a, a dunce on that basis. Yeah. <laughs> But she's from Sheffield. Actually, <laughs> um, but there's actually some, even people who think they know business often get it wrong. Now, yeah. you've got it right because you're that smart. But um, what people might do, can you see the one above where I've got 10 minus 2 plus 3? Can Hang you on, see that me, one? I can't, but let me write it down. 10 minus 2 plus 3. Okay. Now, it'll be interesting to see what you think the answer to that one is. Okay, so it looks to me as though addition is above subtraction. So then you add ah. 2 plus 3, right? Uh, which is five so the answer was, would be 10 minus five which is five so that, that's actually a misconception so that that's what a lot of people think they think that because well in business um they think that uh, just because of the order of the letters that they do addition before subtraction yeah but can you see that i've intentionally written the a and the s on the same line so i've got b at the top yeah. then i below that then d and m Below that and then a and s below that and basically that there's no rule that says you should do addition before subtraction they're kind of the same order priority really? so if you see them you basically you just do it left to right so in that particular case the, we've Span been the spaniards the spanish producer is telling me that that's she was told addition before subtraction there's kind of a, a sort of incorrect way of interpreting business in the correct way and i can assure you if you put this in your calculator um, that won't give you five. So it, let's do it because subtraction addition are the same order of priority. Yeah. You do it left to right. So you're going to do the 10 minus two first. Right. So that's eight. Plus, and then three, plus three is 11. So it's actually 11 plus right. five. Now, if I put this into a calculator, because I've just got one calculator on my phone here, um, will it yes. automatically use Bidmus then? Is that what it will do? Yes, it, it should do. So, so, as long as so, so I do 10 minus two plus three, it gives me 11. There you go. Yeah, indeed. And my, my calculator I've got here also give, gave me 11. Okay. Interesting. Well, that's really interesting, isn't it? So so, so you would say in every in every scenario, the the, 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 multiple, sorry, the addition and the subtraction, you just do it left to right, no matter what. That's correct. But if you were to have like a mixture of addition, subtraction and multiplication, yes. you would still do the multiplication first. Yes. But once you've done that, 
you're correct. You just do it left to right rather than doing the addition necessarily before the subtraction. Ah, okay. All right. Well, that's fascinating. You know, I, I, was, I was talking to them this morning, the guys, uh, in, uh, the production guys, and I said, I, I can't imagine I'm going to have much to say about this. I'm going to do one sum and that'll be the end of it. But, you know, as ever, Jamie, yeah. you've managed to uh, fascinate us with your, uh, with your interpretation of maths. It's great. No problem at all. Brilliant stuff. Jamie, thank you very much indeed. Are you taking off the rest of the summer now then? Is that your, uh, is that your final furlong for us? Yeah, so it was a kind of staff training today. And then tomorrow we're just saying, uh, we're coming in to just say goodbye to the teachers. And I think there's a kind of um, cricket match going on, sort of staff cricket match. And, ah. and that's it. Wow. Okay. Well, it's been a, f a funny old year for, for for everybody involved in education. So let's hope that uh, when we come back in September, uh, it looks a bit more like uh, the normal world that we would want it to be. Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah, Jamie, thank you very much indeed. Uh, it's drfrostmaths.com is where you find uh, Jamie Frost, the maths teacher, finalist for the Global Teacher Prize 2020. Well, that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, see, I didn't really, I didn't think it was interesting. I have to say, I will confess that when we start, when I was explained, as it often is explained to me, because you have to explain it to me in words of one syllable, because I'm not always that bright about these things. I just thought, I can't imagine why I would want to know any of this. But then now I do know it, I am quite like it. I might spend the rest of the afternoon doing loads of sums. For, for no apparent reason. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.